Andy Ruiz versus Anthony Joshua too. We saw what happened in the first fight, shocking the world. Um, what do you make of the rematch? Does Andy Ruiz have Anthony Joshua's number? Well, I was at the first fight. Mm -hmm. And after the knockdown, I heard uh, Joshua's corner yelling, go back inside, go back inside, fight him on the inside. I thought that was the dumbest thing you could ever do to a guy with short arms. Mm. He got short arms. He can't reach from the outside. So you go do him a favor and engage him on the inside? That's nuts. But anyway, I give the edge to Joshua. And main reason being, because I still think skill-wise, Joshua is the better talent. Mm -hmm. And not taking under Andy Ruiz, I've always been, I always like Andy. Mm -hmm. that, that's not changing. But on the, um, on the boxer standpoint, if Joshua goes to box him and keep him on the outside using his reach, Andy won't have a chance to hit him. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that you have to give an edge to the gold medalists because throughout the history, especially of the heavyweight division, the gold medalists always have showed you why they go, why they was gold medalists. Mm -hmm. Now, would Joshua be different? Would Joshua follow the footsteps of previous gold medal heavyweight champions that lost their title and regained it? Or would he fall into the slums of he lost and he can't get back? That's a, that's, that would be a big question. Yeah. Um, but that also is thrilling to see. Will he follow the history of, that gold, of the gold medals of the heavyweight division? Ali lost his title. He ended up getting it back from George Foreman. Mm -hmm. Then he went to fall Joe Frazier again to beat him. Mm -hmm. You know, so Linus Lewis, gold medalist. He lost his title to Rockman, came back, and whooped Rockman. So will he follow that the lineage of heavyweights that lost their title and, and came back to win it? That would be the most that would that is the most interesting thing mm -hmm. about the fight. Mm -hmm. So now it comes more so down to the talent of Anthony Joshua and less than the will of um, Andrew Ruiz. Mm -hmm. Andrew Ruiz is not gonna change. He's still the same fighter. He's still the same fighter with the short arms. If he engaged on the inside, Joshua's in trouble. If um, Joshua fight him on box him on the outside and use his reach, Andrew Reese is in, is in trouble. The same way Vitaly Klitschko boxed Ariola. Mm -hmm. Now, Ariola was faster, and he was willing to throw, land the punches, but the way Klitschko, Vitaly Klitschko fought him, kept circling him, kept circling him, wouldn't stay still, Ariola couldn't get no shots off. Who would you say is the best heavyweight right now? It, it, title or no title, but who would you say is the best in the division? I have to give three guys the best in the division. I can't just name one, but because of the title, you got to give it to, um, um, you got you to gotta go with um, um, Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. Mm -hmm. They tied the number one to me. Okay. They fought a draw. They tied the number one to me. Mm -hmm. So you got Fury and Wilder tied the number one. And then you got Urias um, um, and Joshua. Those are, those are the number twos, yeah. you know? So that's, that's the four guys are ones and twos. Mm -hmm. And I think the, um, the fourth and fifth one would be probably um, um, Big Baby Miller and Dylan White. Mm -hmm. But I think Usyk is better, is one of the most talented right now in the division. I was gonna ask you about him because obviously his fight's just a few weeks away and he's taking on Tyrone Sprong, so, um, but people highly rate him in a division that he is yet to fight to fight in. Well, you know, because people look at the history of the cruiserweights moving up everywhere. Yeah. That's why they rate him. If you could do what if you could do what he did in the cruiserweight division, who to say he can't do it in the heavyweight division? Right. Like one of Holyfield's toughest fights was his cruiserweight championship with Dwight Muhammad Kawi. Mm -hmm. He didn't fight nobody that tough in the heavyweight division. Mm -hmm. It wasn't tooth and nail like that. Well, it was a Riddick Bow. It was a Riddick Bowl, but it wasn't that high and stuff like that. But he um, he destroyed Amama Kawi, especially the second time around. Mm -hmm. He just completely destroyed him. So therefore, they see people see. That's why everybody acts about the age of the fighters once they reach over 35, because they all everybody go off the history of the sport mm -hmm. and not the current administration, the current technology that we have that made the sport different today than what it was for previous fighters on yesterday, you know, but I think that's, that's what it, that's what is a part of it is. Hey, Fight Fans, it's Michelle Joy Phelps. If you haven't already subscribed to our YouTube channel, make sure you do so by clicking this icon right here or else. A couple of days ago, 
Eddie Hearn said that Anthony Joshua might retire if he beats Andy Ruiz in the rematch. Now, people are obviously saying it was a throwaway comment and that he didn't really mean it. But the fact that he said it in more than one interview, because he said it here in this Box and Social interview and also in this IFL interview, and he brought it up himself. The fact that he did that leads me to suspect that it wasn't just a throwaway comment. Now, again, I could be wrong here. This is just my interpretation of the situation as an outsider looking in. But I don't think that Anthony Joshua will retire if he beats Ruiz. And I don't think Eddie Hearn believes that he will either. My suspicion is that what Eddie Hearn is trying to do here is muddy the waters. If any of you have heard that expression, muddy in the waters, essentially what it means is if you want to hide your true intention, you might want to throw some red herrings out there, yeah, to lead people in the wrong direction so that it won't clock on to what you're actually trying to do. And I think, or I suspect, that's what Eddie Hearn is doing. He's throwing some red herrings out there because what he's trying to lead people away from, in my estimation, is that he intends to basically guide Anthony Joshua a lot differently if AJ beats Ruiz. I think he's going to be a lot more careful about who who he puts AJ in the ring with. And I don't think that he's going to be so keen to put AJ in with a Deontay Wilder anytime soon if he beats Andy Ruiz. It's indisputable fact that he did try to make AJ versus Wilder several times. I mean, he even went to the lengths of getting John Skipper in to mediate, and John Skipper offered Deontay Wilder $120 million, which included a two-fight deal against Anthony Joshua. So there's absolutely no question about it that AJ and Hearn wanted the Deontay Wilder fight prior to AJ losing to Ruiz. <clears throat> but that loss, <clears throat> excuse me, that AJ had to Andy Ruiz, that shook Eddie Hearn to the core of his soul, shook him to his boots. He never imagined that Andy Ruiz would be Anthony Joshua. His faith in AJ must have been shaken. He can't have the same level of confidence in AJ now that he had in him prior to the Ruiz loss. And therefore, what do you think he's going to do? You guys tell me, Eddie Hearn is a businessman. You seriously think he's going to be as gung-ho with AJ? Um, If AJ beats Ruiz as he was prior to the first Ruiz fight, do you really think that? Does that make logical sense? Eddie Hearn has admitted that he moved AJ very quickly. I mean, we can all see that on AJ's ascent to the top of the division. He was moved extremely quick. Eddie Hearn said on many occasions, actually, we put him in fights he wasn't ready for. He said that about the Klitschko fight. Was he ready? No, but we put put him in there anyway, and he found a way to win. You could see that he wasn't ready. These are things Eddie Hearn said himself, right, after the fight, as well as before. So... I think that Eddie Hearn is intending to pump the brakes on AJ and be way more careful about who he puts him in with. And I suspect AJ is also looking to pump the brakes. I mean, he's been saying stuff recently like, I might fight a Tom Schwartz level opponent or an Otto Wallen level opponent if I beat Andy Ruiz. You know, I want some easy fights. Again, people are taking that as throwaway comments, but it's been my suspicion for a long time that this is actually what AJ and Hearn are going to do. They're going to not be so maverick, not be so bold. They're going to rein it in, pump the brakes, and guide AJ a lot more carefully if he manages to beat Ruiz in this rematch. And the Wilder fight is going to have to make crazy money, I think, uh, for AJ to want to get in there from here on in. You know, I mean, I'm sure AJ would fight Wilder, but Hearn is going to advise him go this way rather than that way. And ultimately, AJ, it's his decision to make. But I suspect there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure uh, on AJ from Hearn and 
probably Sky, to not fight Wilder for now, and maybe even fight Fury before he fights Wilder. Uh, particularly if Fury can get hold of Wilder's belt. You know, that I think would be the ideal scenario in the mind of an Eddie Hearn. He'd probably think, you know what? If Fury beats Wilder, that's going to work out great for us. Uh, because if we can do a unification between AJ and Fury, that's a less dangerous fight. You know, I'm, I'm, this is how Eddie Hearn, in my view, is probably thinking. And when I say less dangerous, in the sense that Fury is less likely to knock AJ out, that AJ would probably have more time in a Fury fight to maybe stop him. Whereas against Wilder, it's like blink and you could be on the canvas. With Fury, he's not that kind of puncher. Doesn't have that, that kind of dynamic explosive power to be able to end the fight suddenly. So, yeah, that's my suspicion, people. I think that Eddie Hearn is trying to throw people off the scent by saying that AJ might retire. I think it's a red herring. It's, it's, it's done to muddy the waters and confuse people as to what's really going on in the AJ Eddie Hearn setup. So that's just my take on it. I could be wrong. I'm not an insider on this situation. But let me know what you guys think in the comments. Will AJ and Hearn be just as keen to get the Wilder fight um, after this Ruiz rematch if AJ wins as they were before? I think no. Maybe you think yes. Drop it below. Let me know how you feel. It's happening. I'm out. So we have the official attendance figure for Fury versus Wallin and also the official gate, the number of tickets sold. So there was, uh, you know, according to the Nevada State Athletic Commission, 3,577 tickets sold for Fury versus Wallin. And about the same amount were given away as comps, right? Just slightly more than that were given away as comps, complimentary tickets. Uh, so the fight generated a gate of just under a million dollars. Now Tyson Fury's baseline purse was over a million dollars and he gets paid a lot more on top of that. They don't uh, publish how much Tyson gets paid on top of his baseline, but they do say that it's significantly more. Otto Wallin, his baseline was, I think, something like, 300,000, 500,000 or something like that. So the point I'm making here is that it appears as though this fight would have lost a significant amount of money. Yeah, this event would have lost a significant amount of money. Once you've paid Fury and Wallin, I mean, the numbers just don't add up. Unless they're making money from elsewhere, maybe they're getting people in, buying hot dogs and drinks and stuff like that. Um, maybe they make a significant amount from that too i don't know but it, it appears as though espn and bob arum did their conquers on this event as eddie hearn likes to say <laughs> so as far as the deontay wilder rematch doing two million pay-per-view buys i seriously doubt it frank warren was asked in this interview how many pay-per-view buys the Fury Wallen fight did on uh, BT Sport, and he said that he doesn't know. And he also said that it wasn't his decision to put it on pay per view, which is what I said in a previous video as well. That I suspect, to be fair to Frank Warren, it wasn't really his decision to put uh, fights like this Fury Wallen, Fury uh, against uh, what's the other guy called now? Schwartz. It probably wasn't his decision to put it on pay per view, it was probably BT Sport. Uh, but he he did let something slip here, which I found quite funny. He said that the Fury-Wallen fight wasn't for a title. <laughs> so here you've got Tyson Fury running around calling himself the lineal heavyweight champion and announcing his fights as for the lineal heavyweight championship and Bob Arum doing the same and Frank Warren in this interview saying it wasn't for a title, which of course it wasn't. The lineal heavyweight championship is just a fictitious imaginary title which doesn't have a sanctioning body. So there's no rules attached to how you keep hold of the lineal. There's no cast iron, you know, set of criteria for how you become lineal, how you hold on to lineal, so on and so forth. It's all just made up by fans and enthusiasts and stuff like that. 
But there is actually no written rules when it comes to this whole lineal thing. Because, of course, Tyson Fury was out the ring for a long time. He was stripped of various belts. He was even stripped of the ring magazine belt. So all these other sanctioned bodies can strip you. But with the lineal, what? As long as you don't lose, you can you remain lineal champion. And what? Does that mean you're the man? What if you decide to fight absolute cupcakes and journeymen? For the rest of your career and you don't ever take on a legitimate fighter. Do you still remain the man to be in the division just because you're lineal? It doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense. Okay, so when Frank Warren had that slip of the tongue there, he was actually revealing some truth. There was no title on the line. Fury Wallen was a non-title fight. Let's get it straight. And interestingly enough, the Tom Schwartz fight actually sold more tickets than, uh, than the Wallen fight. It says here... Uh, the Tom Schwartz fight sold 5,489 tickets and they gave away 1,187 uh, 1, as comps. Uh, they say that that event generated $882,000 at the gate as opposed to, okay, so the, the tickets were, I guess, more expensive for the Fury Wallen fight than they were for the Fury Schwartz fight. So that might be why they sh they sold more for the Wallen fight. But yeah, I mean, if they're talking about doing 2 million pay-per-views for the uh, Wilder rematch, I mean, look at what Wilder's been doing recently. He ain't been doing numbers, which would suggest that the Fury rematch is going to do 2 million pay-per-view buys. I mean, Wilder's been struggling to get the money together to fight Luis Ortiz in this rematch. And Ortiz must be banging the door down of Al Heyman and, and whoever he needs to to get the Wilder fight to make sure it happens because Luis Ortiz of course turned down the Anthony Joshua fight seemingly with the promise that he would get Wilder instead so he's not going to take no for an answer he is going to absolutely demand that that Wilder fight takes place because imagine if they skipped over Luis Ortiz and just went straight into the Tyson Fury fight Ortiz would be livid because he's thinking, I could have got that Joshua fight. I could have been in Ruiz's position, you know. But as I say, they're struggling to get the money together for the Ortiz fight, which is why even though they announced it in May, here we are, it's nearly October, and they still haven't given us a date or a venue for Deontay Wilder versus Luis Ortiz. I mean, it should be straightforward. It's an in-house fight. It's not like they've got to negotiate with a different network or a different promoter. No, it's all in-house. It's all Al Heyman. So how on earth is it taking so long? Or well, it's very simple. It's because they're struggling to get the money together. We've seen Showtime uh, recently come out and say that they rejected the Wilder Ortiz pay-per-view. They don't see it as financially viable. Because obviously Deontay Wilder wants all this money. How are they going to recoup the money? How are they going to make a profit on the money that Wilder wants to be paid? Or even maybe the, the money Ortiz wants to be paid. Because Ortiz skipped what was it, a $6 million or $7 million payday against Anthony Joshua? Well, he wants serious compensation. <laughs> you know, understandably so. To be honest, he was terribly advised and he should have taken the Joshua fight, obviously. So, yeah, we'll see what happens here, people. Could this put the Fury Wilder fight in jeopardy? I mean, that Fury Wilder can be a pay-per-view, of course, because the first fight was a pay-per-view and it did make a profit. Uh, but it's not going to do anything remotely close to 2 million pay-per-view buys the way it's looking right now. I mean, it'll be lucky to do 600,000 pay-per-view buys. We'll see how it goes. But let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's happening. I'm out. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week, covering a wide variety of controversial topics, as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, 
you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. Oscar Bevis for IFL TV in association with MTK Global. I'm here today at the way in for Saturday night show at Royal Albert Hall. I'm delighted to be joined by Dean White. Dean, bit of a different circumstance this time. Yeah, no, this time I've got a well hydrate protein. You know, they're not, I'm not sponsored by them, but hey, I was uh, de dehydrated and uh, I got this drink, so I thought I'd uh, have a little bit of bevy. The other night I was having a nice drink at the um, open my box, a great um, A nice drink or some nice drinks? You, you hit it on the head, the nail on the nice head. Drink. Loads of drinks. <laughs> had a great time. I don't even know how I got home, to be honest. It was a good night, wasn't it? It was a good night. No, it was a really, really good night. So, um, yeah. Right, um, Shaq and Peters, because I spoke to Shaq in the change room after yeah. his fight against Dex Spellman, where he became English champion. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't speak to you that night, so I just want to quickly run through that fight. Um, and you just told me actually as well that he's going to be defending that title in November. Yeah, do you know, it was a really, really good fight. You know, like, um, if you are a fan of boxing, you'd appreciate how that was. That was someone, you know, he's got a lot of attributes. He's very long, he's rangy, got a great jab and um, great movement. Um, Dex Spellman comes forward and he pressed the action. He's pretty fit still because he pressed the action all night and he was a big puncher. We knew he was a big puncher because his record dictated that and he had a lot of knockouts, you know. Um, I was surprised in there um, with Shaq in terms of, I learned a lot about him because he had a, you know, we showed that he had a great chin, could take a punch. He showboated and he boxed and he was relaxed in there a lot of the time. But you know, like he, he done the 10 rounds, he got that under his belt and now he's an English champion. He'll come again and he'll learn, you know. So um, it, it was a great night. Obviously, there's a few chinks he needs to iron out. He's got a few, um, uh, a few months now to get back into the gym and, and focus. So um, speaking to these here today, potentially he's got a date uh, November the 30th, but there's a few things that need to be niggled out first. But the date is there in Birmingham, November the 30th, and that's the date we'll be looking for, you know? Considering the stage of his career that he's at, he's now... 13-0. Uh, 13-0, exactly. And he's now got the English title as well, um, still obviously young, so you're sort of yeah, happy yeah. where the way, the way it's yeah, going. No, I'm, I'm happy where he is. He's, he's, you know, we've got to progress him in the right fashion. Um, and, you know, because a lot of these, he didn't have the greatest amateur career. You know, he didn't really take it seriously. He had a few, he had a quite a, a decent fight. So I can't remember how much, but I don't think he was taking it as seriously as some of the boys who went and went on to be Olympians on English boys and stuff. You know, sometimes in your, your boxing, but you're not taking it serious and you're probably out partying and drinking and doing other stuff. Maybe he was one of those guys, but he didn't take it serious. But as a professional, he's taking it a lot more serious and um, he, he's doing well. He's 13 and 0. Now he's an English champion. What we've got to do is kind of guide him and push him and make sure he gets the right fights at the right time. The light heavyweight division in the UK is stacked. There's a lot of boys. You've got Yard who fought for World Title, you've got Boatsy on Matchroom, and then you've got Hutchison here, you've got um, Dan Aziz, you've got. Um, there's so many boys here. So it's down to me as management and the rest of the team to guide him, maneuver him correctly, and get him the right fights at the right time. I think he has got. He's a great prospect. He's 6'6, six, six, he's a tremendous athlete to bore down and get to light heavyweight. So, you know, um, we've got the date there, but I just need to, you know, pick the right fights, guide him, and hopefully he'll go out there and do as good and be as good as I believe he can be, you know? And later that night, there was some boxing over in Vegas. What's that, uh, Tyson Fury and Fury, Otto, Otto Wallin. Wallin, yeah. Yeah, what a fight that was. That was a great fight also. I think, like I was saying to him. Um, scorecards don't show you the full the story. Of course it doesn't. Yeah, of course. And um, what, you, what, you, what you've got is you've got a lot of people that are obviously negatives and you know you get positive but in this sport you got you know you got you got you got to be um have thick skin to deal with certain boxing fans there's a small segment of them um that do a lot of negative talking and um it's it's part and parcel listen you got you got to take it it's up to you or you know you don't watch it or you don't read it or you read it and it's like, however you want to take it but what i look at like, and i said to the, the gentleman just now with that i think it was a good performance he got two big cuts under his eye and he managed to box and was quite aggressive 
as, uh, than I've ever seen Tyson Fury before. Because if you, if you watch him, he's very um, tricky and sticking. But he, he walked forward, he pressed the action, he went to the body and he tried to fight him, tried to push him back and um, tried to get him out of there because he's probably thinking these cuts could get worse, it could get stopped and I might be losing on points. So, Did you he, ever think that there was one point where you thought this is actually in danger of being stopped now? Um, I'm not too sure because I watched it the day after, I already knew oh, the yeah. result. But what, if you're looking at it, it was that there was a possibility those cuts were really, really bad. Um, the cuts man done really good, Vaseline and helped him to get through that. But like I said, good um, credit to him, credit to his team. He got the win. You know, sometimes you've got to win ugly and get the win and just move forward and learn from that, you know what I'm saying? So that Otto Wallin was doing a lot of dirty, nasty stuff. He was poking, he was prodding at it when the ref was telling him to part. Nasty bit of work. Um, but you know, listen, this is, this is, this is, this is boxing. You, you're going to expect, you, you've got to expect everything in this game of sport, you know what I mean? And they say defend yourself at all times. So it's just one of those ones, you know? Would you make a shame for his comments? Uh, nothing really, you know, like, like I said, he's a man. You know, like, so he's going to feel that he needs to talk as a man. If, some, if someone confronts you, you're going to have to talk as a man. And he did that. Uh, you know, I've got nothing bad to say about him. I can't continue to go on that. I'm trying to work and graft. I'll leave him to it. Like I said, I just deal with anyone in the same vein. If anyone steps to me and, and, and he's negative and I've got to deal with that, I deal with it as I see fit. And yeah, that's what it is. I'm, I'm not even going to bother keep going around that. I've got bigger and better things frying, you know what I'm saying? So I've got to concentrate on that. I thought I saw you doing some on Instagram some sparring preparation with a light welterweight or whatever. No, there was a small guy this morning. Um, all what it was, was is I was just jabbing and he was trying to slip a move. So I was just messing about with him. Obviously, his coach wanted me to do some stuff. I was in the gym this morning early doing a bit of boxing and um, they wanted me to jab towards him so he could slip it and do some stuff. But it's just a bit of fun. Right, Canelo Kovlev. This is actually what I was talking to Spencer and Tunde about before you come along with your brandy or whatever. Okay, and yeah, 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 yeah. Decided to shut down the whole conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, Canelo Kovalev, talk to me about it. Canelo is a future Hall of Famer, incredible athlete, incredible fighter. He's fought anyone you can think of. Any, he's fought all comers and he's still relatively young, you know, and he's only going to get better. So for me in that fight, I think this is, is, is quite an easy fight. Canelo and his team are very good at picking the right fights at the right time. Kovalev is on the way... Um, down, he's still a hell of a champion. Obviously, Yard had a great fight of him, had an opportunity, but the inexperience um, told on the night, and he and, and he and he and he couldn't pick him off. I think Canelo will do the damage. Canelo's had so much experience; he's had over 50 fights. He's going to go in there and and, and tear him a new one. <laughs> Just do you not see the size being much of an issue? No, nah, no, nah, I, I don't think it's going to be does that. Seem to be I think he's going to go to the body, he's going to chop him in half and then go upstairs again. He's going to get him out of there. It's going to be a hard fight because Kovalev's got a world-class jab. He's an elite fighter um, also. So what you have is two elite fighters, but I just think the fresher, the more hungrier guy is the younger guy. And I'm going to go with Canelo all, all day. Um, I, I think Kovalev to the body is weak. Andre Ward showed a little while ago, how you defeat Kovalev in defeating him twice, and it's there. The, the recipe, the, the, the recipe to make that bake that cake is there. So all they're going to do is they're going to go upstairs and then go to the body, and and and, and they're going to start early going to the body, which Anthony Yard should have done. Obviously, I can talk from outside, but he should have gone to the body a little bit earlier, and I think it would have paid more dividends. But that fight, I just see um, Canelo winning in emphatic, emphatic way. Yeah. Okay. Just finally, I want to talk about the 147 division. Um, Sean Portrail was spent this weekend and then the other night I spoke to Amir Khan at Ultimate Boxer and he mm -hmm. was saying that there's still potential for him and Brooke. I know it's something we've heard many, like we've yeah. heard for years now and some people are saying that we're actually getting bored of hearing about it. Of course. But um, obviously there is still public interest in that. So just sort of um, Khan, Brooke mm -hmm. and uh, Spence Porter and that sort of division. Just talk to you about that. Khan, Brooke is a great fight for the UK boxing fans. I think people are still... I think people are still going to tune in because it's a fight that everyone you know, wants to see and has been wanting to see. I know there's been a lot of talk about it, but Khan's been out there. He's cleaning up a lot of money in you know, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, wherever he's been boxing. So now he's come back, back home and he wants to get that fight on. Like he said, that fight will always be there waiting for him. So potentially now he's looking to take that fight. It's going to be an interesting fight, I think. But Kelbrook's been off a while, but he's very strong, big puncher, you know, quite accurate and sharp. So I think it'll be a good fight, that one. Um, so I'd like to see it so you know, let's see how that turns out um, the second one Sean Porter and Earl Spence on the weekend going to be a heck of a fight I like both guys um, Earl Spence big fan of his um, big big guy for the week 
Sean Porter, strong, comes forward, bulldog. It's going to be a great fight. You know, the fans need to tune in and uh, log in if they want to see a, a real, real good fight. I think it will go the distance, but I think we're in for a good war Saturday night. I'll lean towards Earl Spence because, like I said, I'm a big fan of his, and I've travelled to America a few times to see him, so I'm going to lean towards him, but I wouldn't be surprised if one of them looping shots what Porter likes to throw catches him and could do things. It's boxing. You and never you know can for a know. fact he won't make it easy. It'll never He's be never easy against Sean Porter. It's yeah, not going to be one of those type of things. So, yeah, you know, it's going to be an interesting Saturday night. Okay, Dean White, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks very much, TV. as always, guys. Anything else you'd like to add? No, no, all good, all good. All good, all right, we'll catch up with you soon. Cheers, mate, thank you. Once the opportunity arose for him to close the show, and he did it in emphatic style. Delivery, it's Paul. So over the past few years, we've had a lot of American boxing fans, mainly Deontay Wilder and PBC fanatics, who like to take a dump or try to take a dump on British boxing and the success of British fighters like Anthony Joshua by saying that it's easy to become successful in the UK as a boxer because they'll support just about anybody and there are no other sports really to follow in the UK. Whereas in America, there's a vast array of different sports that people follow. And therefore, it's more difficult uh, to become a star in the United States. Well, I've long said that this is absolute, complete and utter nonsense. Uh, first of all, the people saying this have got no idea about the sporting scene in the UK. They don't know which sports are popular. They've got no idea what they're talking about. In the UK, you've got football, okay, real football, not American gridiron. I'm talking about football. We actually play with your feet, okay? Football, which is the biggest sport in the world, <laughs> right, is also by far the biggest sport in the UK. Uh, and there are loads of different stars uh, in football in the UK. Then, of course, you've got uh, boxing, which is big now, but it never used to be big. You go back you know, 15 years or whatever in the UK, boxing was like number 10 or number nine in terms of most popular sports in the UK. It was nowhere near the number one. You've got rugby, which is popular in the UK. You've got motorsport, which is very popular. You've got cricket, which is still popular. You've got athletics, which is still popular. I mean, you've got a whole host of different sports which are popular in the UK. Darts is popular, all right? And the UK has a population which is like, what, one-fifth the size of the United States? So in the United States, yes, they do have more sports, but they don't have five times as many sports which are popular in America as they have in the UK. Do you understand? So what people are trying to, trying to say is that per capita, America has more popular sports than the UK does, but it's just not true. Again, do the maths. Does America have five times as many sports per person as the UK does? No, it doesn't. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers I mean, for uh, American boxing and compare them to British boxing, American boxing should have five times as much interest in their fighters. Yeah. Once upon a time, they actually used to back in the eighties and seventies and stuff like that the size of the American population was reflected in their pay-per-view numbers, ticket sales, etc., cetera, uh, compared to the UK. And the success of this right here, the UFC, is really the smoking gun nailing the coffin evidence, which shows that the lack of popularity that boxing has in America right now isn't just to do with the, the number of sports that people have, you know, available to them. There are a lot of sports in America, you know, the college football and basketball and all that kind of stuff. But the main issue is with the fans and what they want and the way boxing is marketed. Because UFC is a combat sport. UFC, it's been acknowledged, has taken a lot of boxing fans. A lot of people who used to follow boxing now follow UFC instead. So it's a very similar fan base 
the UFC uh, fans and the boxing fans. So UFC with Dana White, they've obviously done a lot of things right by way of promoting their brand and boxing hasn't caught up. Yeah, this is what's going on. So rather than blaming it on, oh, there's too many sports. No, if, if there were too many sports, how could UFC, you know, MMA, which is a, a newer sport, certainly a newer brand in boxing, how could they come along and manage to take all, you know, so many fans and become such a popular sport? How could that happen if there wasn't any space? Because again, people are acting like there's not enough space for boxing to be popular in America because it's too overcrowded with other sports. Well, take a look at UFC. Plenty of space for UFC. They ain't having no problems. So you can't use that excuse. It's a load of rubbish. And as far as it being easy to succeed in the UK uh, when it comes to being a boxer and being popular, well, no, it's not that easy. Because as I said, prior to Eddie Hearn coming on the scene, boxing in the UK was in the dark ages. There was hardly any big shows going on. Frank Warren was at the top and... What the hell was happening? There was really nothing happening much. When Eddie Hearn first came on the scene, he was having to scrape by by putting on prize fighter tournaments, you know, which involved like low-level prospects and journeymen and washed-up old pros. And they were taking part in these one-night tournaments where they have a bunch of free-round fights. It was all very low-budget, cheap and cheerful when Eddie Hearn first came on the scene. Yeah, it wasn't easy at all to uh, start putting on big events and what have you. It took a long time to build up to that point. Frank Warren couldn't manage it. Yeah, Since the 90s, really, up until when Eddie Hearn came on the scene, you're talking about you know, a period of well over 10 years. During that whole period, boxing in the UK was uh, not in great shape for the most part. It wasn't in great shape. I mean, Lennox Lewis retired in the early 2000s. Obviously, you had Ricky Hatton come along. Um, and there was some... There, 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 was, there was some buzz around Ricky Hatton, but of course, Ricky Hatton fought a lot in the United States, you know. Um, and if you're talking about right now, the situation in the UK now, if it's so easy to make big stars in the UK and to just, you know, because a lot of these American fans carry on like Anthony Joshua is a fraud. Well, if Anthony Joshua is a fraud and it's just easy to get any heavyweight and market them and make them big in the UK... Well, how come Daniel Dubois is not as big as AJ right now? Daniel Dubois is virtually unknown in the UK. Daniel Dubois is the British champion. When Anthony Joshua fought for the British title, it was on pay-per-view. Daniel Dubois ain't fighting on no pay-per-views. Nobody knows him. Because it's not just so easy <laughs> to, to build somebody up like the way AJ was built up in the UK. No, it's not that easy. You have to know what the hell you're doing. You have to have the right fighter in the right circumstances and you have to be a promoter that knows your audience. Yeah, you, you, you have to be able to not only promote your fighter, but promote yourself and promote your brand. I mean, if it's so easy to put on shows in the UK and be successful, why isn't Al Heyman doing it? He came to the UK, he put on one show, which was uh, Eubank Jr. versus DeGale. And since then, he hasn't done anything. And that show flopped, by the way, in terms of pay-per-view. So if it's so easy to do low, you know, really good pay-per-view numbers, how come Al Heyman couldn't manage it with Eubank Jr. versus DeGale? Eubank Jr. is well-known in the UK. DeGale's well-known. But yet, they did terrible numbers on pay-per-view, and Al Heyman hasn't done a, sh a show since. So stop acting like it's just easy to do good numbers on pay-per-view in the UK and anybody can do it with just about any fighter. Load of nonsense. You have to know what you're doing. You have to have talent. You have to have the right fighters. You have to make the right fights. Yeah, that's the reality of it. All these people acting like it's so easy to be successful in the UK. Most of them don't know nothing about the UK. They certainly don't know anything about British boxing. All they've known about British boxing is since Eddie Hearn and Anthony Joshua have um, come on the scene and really invaded the United States. Because prior to that, these people didn't know anything about British boxing. The vast majority of them. One or two of them do, but of course they've got an agenda. And because they've got an agenda, they can't be honest and they can't be objective. But the vast majority of them, they know sod all about British boxing. <laughs> but yet they talk about it as if they're experts.
you know, nonsense. Somebody like me, I know far more about American boxing, not only than most American fans know about British boxing, but I know far more about American boxing than most American fans today. Certainly most of the UF, uh, the uh, PBC, excuse me, most of the PBC Wilder fans, I know far more about boxing than they do. I'm more about American boxing than they do. Why? Because I grew up in American boxing. Through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, I was watching boxing day in, day out. You know, I saw these people fight live, you know, on television. Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr., James Tony, Thomas Hearns, all these kind of people. I saw them; these guys all fight live at the time. I was an absolute boxing fanatic nutcase who consumed every bit of boxing media I could get my hands on. Every magazine, every article, every every bit of boxing on television. I was taping it on VHS. I had boxes and boxes full of VHS tapes. I was upsetting family members by, you know, getting VHS tapes and taping over stuff they'd recorded with boxing. I was absolutely obsessed with boxing, you know, in the 80s and particularly through the 90s. So I'm somebody who I, I know a hell of a lot about. I mean, I'm not saying I'm the ultimate authority on <laughs> boxing through those particular time periods, but I know a hell of a lot more than most, you know. Um, of course, there are people who know more than me, you know, older people who were boxing connoisseurs as well. Um, but they're certainly not the majority of boxing fans. They're a minority. Uh, but anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comments. I just had to dispel this myth because, again, if the number of sports in America, and there are more sports in America, I'm not disputing that. There are more sports in America than there are in the UK, which are popular. But the UK has a much smaller population. Do you understand? So it should balance out. And again, UFC is very popular in the United States. UFC is a younger sport than boxing. So how is it that UFC is still doing very well, but boxing is not doing well? How is that possible? If there's no room for boxing to be as big as it used to be, how come there's room for UFC? See, <laughs> people just talking rubbish. The promoters in the United States are too old and short-sighted to really take boxing to the next level and take it where it needs to be. That's the problem. The promoters are just not doing their jobs and it's going to take a young maverick individual to come in and really overhaul the way boxing is done in America. Of course, Al Heyman has tried it. Al Heyman is an older guy. Even though he's extremely smart, Al Heyman, he is an older guy. Um, Eddie Hearn is trying it, but he's a foreigner. So he's meeting a lot of resistance because of the fact that he's foreign. Ideally, they need a young American promoter who has the kind of charisma of an Eddie Hearn and the vision and etc., Someone like that uh, to come in and take boxing back to where it needs to be in the United States. Because as I say, growing up in the 80s and 90s, American boxing was, was lit, <laughs> as they say today, it was popping. People would sh turn up and show out for local talent. I mean, you do see it occasionally in America, like with Demetrius Andrade when he fought at a Dunkin' Donuts Center uh, recently. That was great. You know, you, you got a great atmosphere and a great reception. And Terence Crawford obviously gets a lot of support in Omaha, Nebraska, but they're exceptions to the rule. Generally, in America, people don't support local talent. They used to. Back in the days, people would support their local fighters in America. You know, they didn't have to be world champions or anything like that. Just local fighters who, you know, were, were favorites of that is their hometowns, they get a load of support. So anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's happening, I'm out. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week, covering a wide variety of controversial topics, as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, 
you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. KSI was just a regular guy who started uploading videos of himself sitting on his sofa at home playing FIFA, which is a football game, with a friend of his. And gradually over time, he gained a lot of subscribers because people found him entertaining and whatnot, the way he would rage about uh, playing FIFA. And it turned into a very successful YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. Logan Paul, to my knowledge, again, just a regular guy who started out doing, I guess, prank videos and stuff like that and dare videos and similar situation. Uh, over the course of time, he amassed a following of millions of subscribers. Now, the pair of them who are not boxers, they don't have any amateur backgrounds. They've only had one fight between them, which I guess was, what would you call it? Uh, an exhibition, an amateur bout. Um, now they're having their rematch and it's going to be on pay-per-view in the UK, Sky Sports box office, DAZN in, in the United States. And of course, their first bout uh, was also pay-per-view. I think that was a YouTube pay-per-view. Correct me if I'm wrong. So given the fact that these guys are not even professional boxers, it's quite incredible the uh, numbers that they can draw, the number of pay-per-views they sold for the first bout. Now, the fight is not happening until, until November 9th, but they've already sold 5,000 tickets, which is more tickets than Tyson Fury sold for his last fight. Okay? Incredible that a pair of guys who are not boxers can do these kind of numbers. Now, why is this significant and where am I going with this? Well, I'm not going to say that anybody can become a YouTube star, but there are going to be boxers who are interesting enough or appeal to a certain demographic strongly enough to amass maybe not millions of subscribers, but certainly thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of subscribers there are boxers who will be able to do that. And I'm talking about amateur boxers. I'm talking about maybe some top amateurs who are looking to turn pro in the near future. Some of them will be interested enough people to be able to get a big following on YouTube and social media if they decide to go down that route. And therefore, there's the potential for those guys, you know, fighters in those situations um, to be able to go the independent route or certainly to be able to be in a position of power whereby they don't have to sign long-term deals with promoters early on in their professional careers where they could do it on a fight-by-fight -fight basis. It's kind of like the record industry. Um, you've got certain artists who who made it big on YouTube long before they ever so, uh, signed a record deal. And so when it got to the point um, that record labels wanted to sign them, they were in a position of power. You know, if you're just a regular artist and you don't have a big following and you go to a record label and they like your music, well, they're not going to give you a good deal. They're going to try and sign you to a 360 deal where they keep all the rights. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a following of 10 million on YouTube or whatever, and your videos are getting millions of views, the record labels are going to come to you and you're going to tell them what's going to go in the contract, not the other way around. So there's an opportunity here with social media, with YouTube. I mean, even the ability to set up your own website and do your own pay-per-views via your own website. There's an opportunity here for 
some boxers, I'm not saying it's going to be the right thing for all boxers, but it's, there's an opportunity here for some boxers to actually go this route. Because if these guys can do it, there must be some boxers out there, young fighters, yeah, good amateurs who will be able to do something similar to this. Go independent. And I'll give you an example. Carl Frutch recently came out in uh, a podcast and said that he believes the earth is flat. Now, I don't know whether he was trolling or whether he was serious, but let's just, for an example, say that you had a young fighter who came out, um, maybe when he was still an amateur, you know, high, a top-level amateur, and said that he believed the earth was flat. Now, there is a massive flat earth community on YouTube, and for the record, I am not a flat earther, okay, before anybody starts. Um, nothing against people who are, but I'm definitely not a flat earther. Um, but there's a massive flat earth community. So if a fighter came out as a flat earther when he's an amateur, he would instantly have all these people, you know, the, the, the more things he starts winning as an amateur and the more vocal he is on social media about his flat earth business, um, the more of a following he would get. And so a lot of the flat earthers would just start following this boxer because they think he represents them. And there are many other communities on the internet, similar thing. They might not necessarily be boxing fans, but they'll follow you by virtue of the fact that they think you represent them. And so that flat earther, okay, let's say he wins an ABA title, wins world championships, you know, medals at the Olympics, He's about to turn pro. He's this flat earth guy. Well, he might get ridiculed by the mainstream press and whatnot, but he's got these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of flat earthers who, who support this guy. All of a sudden, he can put on his own shows. All of a sudden, he can start calling people out, you know, calling rivals out. And rivals are looking at him like, okay, I'm actually going to fight this guy because he can pay money. Look at all the fans he's bringing to his fights. And again, you don't have to necessarily be a flat earther. I was just using that as an example. You might be somebody who comments on, um, you know, geopolitics. You might be somebody who is just some kind of funny internet personality on Twitter or whatever. Now, some people are going to say it takes too much time. You know, it would take too much time to be an internet personality to build up a big following aside from your boxing. But not necessarily. It depends on what you're talking about. You know, depends on how witty you are, depends on how clever you are, depends on what kind of content you make. There are some people uh, who have become millionaires from things like YouTube and they don't really put that much effort into what they do. There isn't really hours and hours every week thinking up content. No, they just do minimal stuff, go on camera for a few minutes and for whatever reason people like them. I mean, there are people on YouTube with millions of subscribers who just sit down and eat food in front of camera and they get millions of <laughs> millions of people watching and I'm not knocking them, you know? If, if people want to watch that, I mean, I don't want to watch it, but if other people want to watch it, that's cool, you know? So there's an opportunity there for smart young fighters to take advantage of these platforms, you know, social media and stuff like that. Um, you don't have to go the traditional route. The traditional route might be the right way to go still for a lot of fighters, but for certain other fighters, there's an opportunity for them to go a solo route and become far more successful solo than going the traditional route, signing with a promoter, you know, letting them take care of everything. And again, KSI and Logan Paul have showed you that you can do things independently. And these guys are not even proper boxers. Not every boxer, and it's only going to be a minority of boxers, are going to be able to amass a big social media following. It doesn't need to be millions. It could just be, you know, I mean, the size of my channel. I've got like, what, 60,000 subscribers. Imagine if a young amateur boxer who's just about to turn pro has got 60,000 subscribers who regularly tune in to watch him on YouTube. Imagine if he had that. Imagine how m many tickets he'd be able to sell with that kind of audience already from day dot. Do you understand what I'm saying? But very few fighters have got any subscribers when they turn pro. 
<laughs> you know, on their YouTube channels. Many of them don't even have YouTube channels at all. Or any kind of significant social media presence. Um, I, I say YouTube specifically because you can monetize YouTube, you know. Um, and that's where, and you can also do pay-per-views and stuff like that. So that's where a lot of fighters should be concentrating on. And one of the most difficult things for young fighters is trying to sell tickets. I mean, some of you not, might not be aware that a lot of young fighters actually have to pay promoters to be on their shows. Oh yeah, this goes on. On the small hall circuit in the UK, a lot of fighters are actually paying the promoter to be on the show. Not even getting paid, but actually paying the promoter for the opportunity to be on the show. Now, if you're somebody with a you know, sizable social media following, again, you're going to be able to sell tickets a lot more easily. I mean, look at me. I'm a middle-aged man. I haven't boxed for God knows how many years. If I did a face reveal tomorrow and challenged another YouTuber to a, you know, celebrity boxing match, I mean, <laughs> let me not call myself a celebrity, but, you know, YouTube, British YouTube boxing community, celebrity boxing match, whatever you want to call it, you know, white collar fight, Let's call it that. Um, if I did that, I'm sure I could sell out the your call easily. And it, and if it was somebody more well-known than me, like Coogan, I mean, you never know. We might be able to sell out the copper box or, or something. Do you understand? So if clapped out middle-aged men are able to do that off the basis of the you know YouTube following, imagine what young Guys who, you know, they're in the in generation, they're not old, clapped out old codgers like me, but that they're people who are still relevant in today's society, all right, among the youth generation. If they had a sizable social media following, just imagine what they could do from day dot. Could dictate to promoters and say, okay, I want you to put my fight on. I'm going to fight this person. That might be the future of boxing. You know, or it certainly could be the future for certain fighters who are uh, internet savvy enough, you know, social media savvy enough to be able to, uh, you know, be independent from the beginning. Because there, there's always been fighters who have been independent. Well, not always, but many times in history there have been independent fighters like Floyd Mayweather and, you know, various others. Roy Jones Jr. was independent for a lot of his career. But in the social media age, it's never been as viable to be independent as it is right now. It's never been as viable. Right now is the best opportunity for fighters to be independent because of social media and the ability to market yourself independ you know, independently. As I say, like with music, there's never been a time when it's easier for music artists to get a big following without a record label. It's the same for boxing. It's just that boxers are too, you know, hardwired into going the traditional route. They haven't opened their mind up and expanded their mind to the possibilities out there. Many of them are being guided by older people who are short-sighted and don't really understand social media that well. But as I say, you look at the music industry, there are so many artists now who become extremely successful without ever signing a record a record contract, <laughs> you know? And that never used to be the case. Uh, if, if you wanted to be successful in the 90s and the 80s and, and prior, uh, pr prior to that, you had to sign a record contract. You couldn't do it by yourself for the most part, but today you can. And I'm telling you now, there's an opportunity for boxers to do it as well, to do something similar. Not all boxers, but some will be able to do this if they actually try to try to do it. So anyway, let me know what you guys think about this in the comment section below. KSI and Logan Paul are actually trailblazers. <laughs> they're showing the way. Um, they're shining a light on what can actually be done. If you decide to go that route, let me know how you feel, people. It's happening. I'm out. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week covering a wide variety of controversial topics as well as live stream Q&A sessions. 
take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today.